In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, God willing, today we're going to try to finish up the last three chapters of the book of Romans, chapters 14, 15, and 16. Um, last week we studied chapters 12 and 13, um, which uh, we're speaking about um, the practical aspects of being a believer um, and being in the faith and how we should conduct ourselves. Um, and also St. Paul spoke uh, about the responsibility to uh, the governing authorities and submitting to the authority um, and how, how we should act kind of as, as in a civil way, like civil as in like in the like in, in civics, like in the government as citizens of the country, how we should um, submit to the governing authorities. Um, so God willing, today um, in chapter 14, um, St. Paul gives uh, instructions uh, regarding those who are weak in faith. There's actually a lot of similarities to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which is the chapter where St. Paul is speaking about uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. And if eating meat sacrificed to idols causes my weaker brother to stumble, then I should not do it, even though the, the, the meat itself is, 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 is like normal meat. There's nothing wrong with it. But for the sake of my weaker brother, I should abstain from it. Um, so he touches on this same argument and point here um, when speaking about um, kind of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles that both come to Christianity. Um, so St. John considers that this, um, the, the statements here that St. Paul is making, um, addressing the weak Christians, is regarding this problem that arose between um, the, the Jewish Christians. Some of the Jewish Christians, they clung to the law, while others were living in the liberty of Christ. So some were very much focused on um, like the, the circumcision and the, and the law of Moses, whereas others had kind of put this away. And so there was a, a division kind of among them. Those uh, Christians who uh, felt this liberty and they felt that they didn't have to follow and, and obey the law of Moses anymore um, were being a stumbling block to some of the others because of their practices. And so he, he speaks about this um, here. Um, there are others um, who like of these two groups, the ones who comprehended that they had to become free from the literal rights um, of the Old Testament, they were eating all kinds of meat. And so the, the other group kind of responded by going to the opposite extreme and kind of fasting and abstaining from meat altogether. So not only eating only the things permitted in the Old Testament, but completely stopping meeting, eating meat altogether as kind of like a response to um, the other group who is has more liberty in, in the way that they conduct themselves. So in, in his appeal to these two groups, St. Paul is trying to avoid entering into the struggle itself um, because he considers that the issue of the food itself is not the main focus. It's not about the food. It's kind of a trivial subject, um, and he doesn't want the believers to waste their thoughts on it, but he, he, he wants to bring peace between the two and to kind of um, you know, explain how that people should be dealing with one another when they're in conflict or they have different views um, of this kind. So he starts by saying, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Okay. So what's interesting here is this group who here he's, he's describing as eating only vegetables, right? The group that is 
like kind of placing upon themselves some self-imposed restrictions. They are doing so for the sake of godliness. Like they're doing so because they believe that this is the pious behavior. This is the right action. This is what is it that God wants them to do. This is what they believe. And yet here when St. Paul is describing them, he's describing them actually as those who are weak, right? What does it mean for him to say that they are weak? It means that they are weak in their understanding and weak in their faith, that they believe that salvation is still coming through these kinds of regulations. You know, of course, we as a church, we practice fasting, and there are periods of times where we eat only vegetables and like vegan food, but we don't do so because we believe that it is through this that we have salvation or that the God is commanding us that we must eat certain kinds of food and that other kinds of food are unclean or defiled or sinful. No, we, we abstain for the sake of learning self-restraint and self-discipline, right? Not because we believe that salvation is through the following of the law. So um, even though a person is mistaken about what is permitted by God and chooses to refrain from things that are lawful, God still accepts him. This is, this is what, what here what St. Paul is saying. God is receiving both groups. God is receiving the group that has these impositions on him, these restrictions, and God is also accepting the group who has more liberty um, in the way they conduct themselves. So that person should not judge the other weaker brother who is not living in that same liberty. So we should not reject these, per these people who are weaker in faith. Um, actually, those who are strong in faith they should be the ones to guide the weak person. And, and in order for, for that to start, in order for me to guide someone maybe who is weaker in faith, it starts with respecting them, not with mocking them or rejecting them. So a lot of times, you know, what happens when we start having division, right, and, and maybe we see this very clearly in our own society, is that you have division and then both groups don't really speak to each other. They don't try to understand. Um, each group assumes that the other group is evil. Um, and so there's no communication, um, and maybe we hurl insults back and forth, which makes the division even more stark and more difficult to ever kind of reconcile again, and so we make things worse. St. Paul's strategy is he doesn't want there to be two groups. He doesn't want there to be one group against another. He's, he says, what, what is the, the law of liberty and the law of love, right? Like, yes, Christ has given us liberty, but what about for people who don't yet understand this concept? don't yet understand what it means to have liberty in Christ, don't yet understand what is the proper place of the Old Testament now that we are in the New Testament. How is it that we understand it all? So as these weaker uh, Christians are growing and learning, right, we have to be able to accept them. We have to be patient with them. We have to accept that they're the, you know, it's taking them time in order to, to, to reach full understanding of this. And so while we are... Um, you know, while we are in this process, we shouldn't try to uh, kind of provoke them. We shouldn't try to do things that are um, going to be a stumbling block um, for them. So we shouldn't judge them, but we should be respectful of them and help them to grow into the fullness of the truth. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Right? He's saying... Those people who are kind of placing these restrictions on themselves, they are the servants of God, and they are doing this to serve God. And those who are um, enjoying the liberty, right, and do not have these um, same rules imposed on them, they also are servants of God, and they are also doing what they believe is pleasing to God. 
And so each one is a servant of God, and God is the one who is going to judge the actions of each one, and to his own master he stands or falls. Meaning God is going to decide, is this person sincere in their faith and, and, and righteous and doing good or not? Not other people who are deciding for themselves, right? So what is this applying to, right? Because maybe people will come with all kinds of things and say, well, don't judge my actions. You know, don't, don't let, let me to do what I want. And, and here St. Paul is saying, do not judge me. And so um, let me to practice and to do and believe and, and practice what I want. In the end, God is going to be my judge. And so the church would be filled with people who do all kinds of different things. Um, and anytime you try to rebuke or correct or, 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 or anything, they'll, you know, defer to this and say, look, well, St. Paul says, do not judge um, because I am the servant of God as well. Okay, so what is the distinction here? Well, how, why is it, you know, why are, we, why are we saying this here and not in other scenarios? Here, we're talking about something that there was no clear, like, moral understanding. It was at the very beginning of the church, the beginning of Christianity. People still were trying to kind of calibrate themselves as to what was expected of them. How is it that we understand the Old Testament scripture in light of what happened in the New Testament? And so there was controversy over this. And it was people were trying to understand the truth and know the truth. And they were getting there in, in, you know, different speeds. Like some people understood it sooner than others. Even the apostles themselves, you know, the apostles themselves, like St. Peter, for instance, he refused to, um, to, to, to kind of show himself to be in the company of the uncircumcised when the circumcised people came. He didn't want them to see him like dealing with the uncircumcised or he didn't, you know, he, he had to be told and, and prepared through a vision of God for him to go and to preach to Cornelius so that he would be willing to go to his house and to preach to him and to baptize him, who was a Gentile. And the other apostles, when they found that St. Peter um, actually had gone into the house of Cornelius and preached to him, they rebuked him until St. Peter told them the vision that he received from God that told him that he should go. So even among the apostles themselves, there was confusion at the very beginning. Right. So here we're talking about having patience with people who are struggling to get to the fullness of the truth. So the target is the same. Right. But maybe the way that we're trying to get there is different or we have different understanding. Compare that to when, you know, maybe people use this kind of excuse that I'm, I'm mentioning to defend their own immoral behavior. Right. So if God makes it clear that there's a certain practice that is immoral, Right. Then we can't say, well, no, you can't judge this action or just as St. Paul said, who are you to judge another servant? Well, no, it's because God made it very clear what is right and what is wrong. And we're talking about something that is a moral issue. It's not just an issue of whether I'm eating certain kind of food or not. Right. So there, there's a there's a difference. Right. This this the, this is something that required patience in order for people to get to the understanding of the truth. One person, so he goes on to kind of explain more of the differences between these two groups. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike, right? The person who is esteeming one day above another, who is he referring to? Who, 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 who is esteeming certain days above other days? The Jews, right? Because... In the Old Testament, God told them to do so, right? He told them to practice certain feasts and fast days. And, and so, so now in the New Testament, the Jews who had become Christians still wanted to hold and practice these Old Testament Jewish 
feast days and fast days, right? So there's a person who's choosing to do this, okay? But another person, he esteems every day alike. Remember, these Gentiles who were coming not from Jewish background at all, they had no background into practicing the, the Old Testament Jewish feasts. That wasn't anything that was in their history and their background and their culture. And they never practiced it. So when they become Christians, they are not practicing those things, right? Um, nor, nor are they required to. Whereas many of the Jews, having become Christians, they are used to practicing these things. So there became, again, this conflict. Like, okay, who is right? What is it that we should be doing? Should we be, as Christians, should we be practicing these things or not? And so here what St. Paul is saying is it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter as long as your intention is the right one, okay? Let each be fully convinced in his own mind, right? Let each be fully convinced. If you're fully convinced that something is for the glory of God and you do it and it's something that's not harmful and it's not actually against God, then do it. It's okay to do it, right? And actually, if you think that something is good, or sorry, if you think that something is evil and you, and you do it anyway, then that is actually sin. And this is what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. To those people who eat the meat sacrificed to idols, it is a sin for them if they believe is it a sin. Right? Like if they believe it, they're going to do something wrong and they do it, it is wrong for them to do it because they did it with their conscience, convi conscience convicting them and they didn't listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they went and did it anyway. Even though the actual eating of that meat is not a sin, but for them it is sin because they, their conscience is affected by it. So let each be fully convinced in his own mind about the truth, about what it's right, whether you esteem one day above another or whether you do not. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, meaning the reason that we are observing the day is because it's a godly event, right? And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it, meaning he has no, like, he, he, it's not like he believes that God is asking him to uh, observe a certain day and then he is, like, rebelling against this command and not doing it. He just, he doesn't have any, any desire or, or, any, there's, or there's no command. There's nothing been requested by God to observe a specific day. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. Right? Like if, if, if I choose to eat certain kinds of food because I believe that this is what is praising God and glorifying God, then I do so for God and I am receive praise from God. If another person does not believe that God, that God accepts this or that God cares about this or this isn't anything required of them to do and they do not do it, they are still giving thanks to God. But they are not practicing this ritualistic practice that the other group is practicing. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So he's saying God is the God of both groups. And what is the concern of God? God's concern is our salvation, right? He, 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 his focus was on um, dying for our sins to save us from eternal death. The issue or his focus is not on just these human practices, right? These differences between one group, how wants to worship versus another uh, group. Well, one group thinks that one day is important. Another day says, no, this day is not important and so on. Like maybe you can think of it as like, um, you know, in the church, um, we had a change of a calendar. Not in the Coptic church, we, we didn't change the calendar. But 
So in, in the 16th century, Catholic Pope Gregory, under his, when he was Pope, um, it was discovered that the, the, the calendar that was being used at the time, which was called the Julian calendar, was off. And it was not correctly matching the, uh, the, the astronomical uh, motion of the Earth around the sun. And so there had been 11 days not accounted for, I believe it was 11 days or 9 days, something like that, not accounted for. Um, and so they needed to adjust the calendar. And that's where we get the Gregorian calendar that we use now. Prior to that, it was the Julian calendar. So essentially everything fast forwarded um, and we skipped like 11 days. Okay? And from that point on, of course, we know in most societies they use the Gregorian calendar. That's what we're familiar with, January, February, March, April, so on. Now the Coptic calendar in the church was based on the Julian calendar. And when that change happened, we did not change. And so we remained with the original calendar. That's why we don't practice uh, Christmas, for instance, um, on December 25th. It actually was the 25th. It was actually was December 25th before the calendar changed. But then the calendar changed, and so now we practice it on a different day um, relative to the Gregorian calendar. Why am I saying this? There are some churches, um, in I believe in the, in the Eastern Orthodox, um, that had a schism in the church because of the calendar. Like there was a group that said, no, we have to stick to the old calendar and just continue with the same feast days and all the dates that we had. And there was another group that said, no, we need to update to the new calendar because the old calendar uh, is not being used anymore, right? And to the point where there was like enmity between these two groups and they, there was a schism and they divided and they completely two different kind of churches, right, as a result. So the question is, is that worth it? You know, why Why are we having these kinds of discussions? Maybe everyone has an opinion, okay? Should it be the new calendar, the old calendar, so on? But whether it is, whether it is the old calendar or whether it's the new calendar, in the end, both groups are doing what they think is right. And this is not a moral issue. This isn't an issue where it's like God says, no, only the, right cal only the old calendar or only the new calendar is right. This is a difference of opinion. So in the end, God is not interested in this. Right. God cares about our salvation. He died and rose and lived again. Right. That he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. And this is what his interest is, is for our salvation and not just the, 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 the quibbling about these kinds of details. But why you but but why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Okay, so to the weaker brother, he is addressing him and he says what he who has doubts concerning like the literal Jewish traditions um, and uh, urges him not to convict his strong brother who has risen above the literal observation of the law. So the one who has the weak faith, which is as St. Paul calls him the weaker brother, the one who is weak in faith, not to judge the one who is practicing liberty, who is not observing these Jewish laws that the Gentiles were never even commanded to observe. Okay? Um, he also addresses the strong, right, the people who are have this liberty, and urges them not to belittle the weak. Right. Um, again, because our focus should not be on trying to judge the actions, these types of ritualistic decisions and things like this, but to be focused on our salvation. And each one of us is going to stand um, in, in front of the judgment seat of Christ and be judged. 
and it should not be for us to judge this amongst ourselves. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Okay, this is very interesting. It goes to, again, what I was mentioning that he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. What, is it th what does it mean for something to be unclean? Okay, like what's an example of something that's unclean? Like if you touch a dead body in the Old Testament, you become unclean and you have to like wash yourself. Yes, okay. So is it sinful to touch a dead body? Well, is it sinful in the Old Testament to touch, an old to touch a dead body? It's unclean. But uh, so, so God, God defined it as something we should not do, okay? And there was like a spiritual meaning behind the things that God asked the people to do in the Old Testament. But inherently, it is, it is, it is, there's, it's not a sin to touch a person, to touch a dead body, just like as it's not a sin to eat pork, right? It is not a sin to do so. It was denied the Jews in the Old Testament to do so. So, of course, if they did it, it became a sin to them because they're disobeying God. But inherently, the thing itself there's nothing sinful about it. There's nothing sinful about touching the dead body. There's nothing sinful about eating pork or eating the other animals that were forbidden in the Old Testament, you know, and so on. So here, this is what St. Paul is saying. There is nothing unclean of itself, right? There is nothing unclean of itself. So there's no such thing as unclean, okay? It was something that was imposed to teach a lesson to the Jews in the Old Testament but now in the New Testament, we don't speak about something being unclean. Now, something can be sinful. Something can be a bad influence. Something can be defiling. But not, not just on the basis of its substance. Based on the influence that it has on us. Right? To take us away from God. So, even though he says nothing is unclean of itself, he says, but to him who considers anything to, to be unclean, to him it is unclean. What does that mean? Yeah, so if I believe that eating pork is a sin, if I really am convicted of that and I believe it, but I go ahead and do it anyway, then it is a sin for me, right? It is a sin. To me, it has become like it's unclean because God is not judging the action. He is judging the heart and the intention, you know? Like if, if, I, if I seek to, to commit a crime, but in the process of me attempting to commit the crime, I don't actually commit the crime, but something happens that I actually do good to another person. Is God going to reward me for the good that I did to that person when it was not even my intention? And actually, maybe my intention was to harm them, right? So it is not the action itself. It is the intention. So if my intention is that I believe that something is a sin and I choose to do that thing, okay, then to me it is sin. And that is what he is saying here. It is not about whether you celebrate a certain feast day or not. It is not about whether you get circumcised or not. It's not about whether you eat a certain thing or not. It's about your intention in doing those things. 
Are you breaking the conviction of your conscience as you are doing it? If so, to you it is sin. This is why when we feel kind of like a conviction about the actions that we're doing, we have to take that seriously. Like it's good to, like, you know, sometimes people think that something might be wrong and they go and ask, is it wrong for me to do such and such? Um, and if the answer is no, it's not wrong, okay, then you don't have that, you don't have that conviction anymore. Like now you're comfortable doing that thing. You don't have to feel guilty doing that thing and so it is not a sin. But if prior to, to understanding that, if these uh, Christians hear that St. Paul is calling those of the weak faith, um, if, if, if they believe that practicing these things is necessary and they do not practice it, then to them it is sin, which is why St. Paul also, he places a burden and responsibility on those Christians who have liberty who do not practice those things. He says to them what? If you lead the other group to sin because you are um, kind of essentially encouraging them to go against their own conscience, then you also will be judged. And this is where kind of the standard, like this is, this is the spiritual standard, right? This is not the natural standard. This is the spiritual standard, that the standard that God is asking of us as Christians to follow. It is, a, it is a standard of self-sacrificial love to where even if you have a misunderstanding about something, but I am encouraging you to do it against your own conscience, then I am actually leading you to sin and destruction. Jeff, yes. So, so think about it like this. Let's say you have a friend that believed that eating pork was a sin, and they took it very seriously. And so when they see other people eating pork, they're going to be offended, right? Like if you go out to dinner with this friend who doesn't eat pork and feels that it's a sin against God, and you order pork, how is that person going to feel? Maybe he's going to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm not talking about other religions. Because there are actually some Orthodox that do not eat pork. Um, so maybe in that context what you can do is you can try to explain say oh you know it's um, actually in the New Testament now there's no problem eating pork and show him the verses in the Bible show him where God actually told St. Peter to eat pork okay and to, to not call any animal unclean but let's say he's not convinced and he's really like completely certain that this is sin and when he sees you doing it he feels offended by it and troubled by it so what should you do? Maybe not do it in front of him. Like like when when, when if you're gonna if you're gonna invite him to dinner, right? Don't eat pork. Okay, and and if and th and, th and this is where it goes even a step further. He says if he eats pork, not because he's convinced that it's good, but he's tempted to do it because of you. Now the judgment is on you. That's what Saint that's what Saint Paul says, and, and that's what he said in First Corinthians chapter eight. So it's a high standard for sure. Okay, but it's something for us to consider because sometimes we think in, in terms of like right and wrong, what's right and what's wrong. But this, what St. Paul is talking about is beyond right and wrong. He's speaking about what's good. You know, there's a difference between right and wrong, like the official, like here's a list of things that are good and here or, or right, here's a list of things that are wrong. But just because something is right doesn't mean that it is good. For instance, like um, someone commits 
some horrible sin or mistake, it is good to correct that person. It is right to correct that person, right? It is right to correct the mistake that was done. But there's different ways I can correct it. You know, I can correct it very harshly. Well, yes, the mistake was corrected. And maybe it was corrected in a way where it will never happen again. But maybe the way I did it wasn't good. Like, it wasn't kind. It wasn't compassionate. It it didn't give a second chance. It didn't make the person feel like they are still accepted even though they fell into the mistake, right? So it is possible for me to try to educate this person who misunderstands the law, okay? While at the same time, you know, like realizing that their conscience is fragile, they don't yet fully convinced of it, and so I'm not going to, you know, do things to, like, provoke it until I'm more sure that they're okay with it and that they really are convinced as opposed to just they're doing it kind of while they're uncomfortable. Yeah. So you... Well, I mean, sometimes we hold hold ourselves to a higher standard, but not because we believe that not doing so is sin, but because we want to be more ascetic. Like, for instance, someone might fast longer hours than is required, or someone might fast, you know, um, you know, like more strictly than what the church is asking. So that might be something that I'm imposing on myself because I want like a harsher, uh, more ascetic fast because there's some spiritual benefit that I get from it. And if I fail, you know, like if I don't, if I'm not able to do what I'm kind of imposing on myself, it's not a sin. I mean, it's a training, right? Like I'm training. Sometimes I'll succeed, sometimes I'll fail, and so on. But that's different than saying that the, the st- that I believe that I am committing a sin by doing something. Because if I believe I'm committing a sin by doing it, then 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 if I choose to do it, then my intention was sin. So then what, what St. Paul is saying, then it actually is sin in that case. Different than like, the the self-imposed standards yeah is it clear or is it still kind of convoluted good so he goes on he says what yet if your brother is grieved because of your food you are no longer walking in love do not destroy with your food the one for whom christ died okay so again speaking to those who have liberty those who understand that God is not requiring them to limit their food. The, one, the ones who understand God is not requiring them to keep certain days. The one who realize God is not requiring them to be circumcised. Those are the ones who have liberty. If their actions are causing some kind of harm or offense or stumbling to bring other Christians to sin, then they should avoid those things even when those things themselves are not wrong in and of themselves. Because like he said, there is nothing unclean of itself. This is what um, St. John Chrysostom says. He says, The sadness of your brother is of greater importance than your insistence to have your food. And you can replace food here with anything. The sadness of your brother is of greater importance than your insistence to do X. Okay? Note how the apostle focuses on love. He knows that love can do all things. Do you not value your brother? 
and so ensure his redemption by abstaining from foods? The Lord Jesus Christ did not abstain from becoming a slave and from dying for his sake. And that, that point is very interesting when he, he gives the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that the Lord Jesus Christ gave up for our salvation? You know, like he was in heaven and he had the angels and he had his throne and he had glory and he had all those things. He And, and those things obviously were very good. And there was no reason that he had to sacrifice any of that. But he sacrificed it for the sake of the salvation of others, of us. So he's saying in a sense... When you are sacrificing something that is good for the sake of the salvation of another person, then this is the law of love. Instead of saying, you know what? No, what I'm doing is actually right. And because I'm right, I'm going to do it no matter who's offended by it. There's a big difference in attitude, right? Um, Therefore, you should not belittle the act of abstaining from foods for the sake of his salvation. He has died not only for the weak, but for the enemy as well. Will you not abstain from foods for the sake of the weak? The Lord has offered the greater sacrifice. Will you not offer the lesser one? Yes. So if you're going to go visit someone who is already Orthodox and they already understand that the church has rules of fasting and they already understand that now is a time of fasting, but maybe they personally aren't fasting. And so when they're going to have a gathering and maybe the other people they're inviting or the majority of them or many of them are, are not fasting. So when you go to that person's house, they already know what they should be doing, right? Like they already know it's fasting time. So when you go and you say, I'm fasting, then it shouldn't be a source of offense or it shouldn't be a source of surprise because they already know it's a fasting time and they already know that you know you, you, you attend a church and you're most likely going to be fasting or maybe they know for sure that you're fasting. Because you, know, you, you could flip that around and say, well, you're offending me by offering me food that's not fasting. right? But if you go visit someone who has no concept of the fasting and they don't know anything about the periods of fasting or how we fast or anything, and you go visit that person, and that person maybe surprised you, didn't even, you didn't even know ahead of time, you, they didn't even give you a heads up that they were planning to make food or anything like that, and they, they come and they offer you this food. Then I would say eat the food. You know, because if, if someone, is, if, if that is really like they're offering you really out of their love, and they have no concept of anything else. Like it's not like they, they knew something that you practiced and they willfully did against it, right? So I think that's the distinction in that case. You know, like it's it's you are sharing your faith by being steadfast in the way that you are practicing. But that only really applies when you're going to visit someone who already understands that now is a fasting time. When you tell them, oh, I'm fasting because now it's the whatever great fast or whatever fast, then you're not directly judging them. You're not saying you're a bad person because you did this or because you're not fasting. But at the same time, you're holding true to what you believe in and what the church is teaching and practicing. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it'll make them uncomfortable, but that's okay. 
But I think it's a very different example than if someone is offering you something that who has no idea. Like even the Lord Jesus Christ, when he sent the apostles before him to evangelize, he told them, eat the food that they set before you. Because the f- these people, they don't know what you eat. You know, they don't, they, the, the people that you're preaching to, maybe they don't have any sense or understanding of what, I- what you should be eating or not eating. Just eat whatever they give you, you know, because these are strangers. Like, they, they don't know. But if you're talking about people from the church, well, we should all know, right? Yes. So, I mean, I, I, th- the issue with the food is not about the food. It's about the fact that someone made a gesture of love and then you're rejecting that gesture. That's, that's where the offense can come. If somebody g- does, like, let's say you go to someone's house and they want to give you a gift. And then you're like, no, 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 I can't. T- I'm not going to take it. Like, that's the same kind of thing. You know, they want to do something good for you as a, as a sign of love and respect. And you tell them, no, I'm not going to take it. Right. That's where the, the issue of the offense can happen. So since you know that this is often the case, then when we go on visitations that people want to feed us a lot of food, then you can just tell them ahead of time. You know, you can say, just wanted to let you know that on my visits, I like to be focused and, and, and speak with the short amount of time we have to the kids. And, and, and eating and food stuff is a distraction. So please don't prepare any food or anything like that because it's a source of distraction and now they know ahead of time before you even before they even mention it because most of the time they don't even mention it you just pop in and now there's food right so 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 that's the best way if you suspect at all there's a possibility that they might make food that's the best way if you find yourself in that situation though and there you are and they're offering the food and then you have to use your judgment because in some cases it's okay to say no i'm sorry and they're not going to be offended. It's not going to be like a stumbling block for them. But in other cases and with certain people, it might be. So again, you kind of have to be discerning about the situation and like how is it that I should proceed. Okay. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, if what you are doing is good, like there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, right? The liberty that you have and the fact that you don't practice certain practices or, or eat or, or limit your food, certain things. If, 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 if you are practicing this, if this is the way that you are living and somebody comes and rebukes you for it and says what you are doing is evil, he says, do not, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, meaning give a defense. Not that you are trying to defend yourself or that you're feeling kind of like personally attacked but what you're trying to do is to illuminate this person to have them to understand how does God actually see these things because he goes on he says for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking right God does not care about this food God is God is he's, he's saying there is nothing unclean out of itself so so if you think that salvation is tied up with the way you're going to eat or salvation is tied up with celebrating a certain feast day then you don't have uh, the right understanding about the kingdom of God. It is not about eating and drinking, but it is about righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. So this is an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for when someone comes and criticizes, 
a certain practice of those Christians who have this liberty to instruct them. Now again, he, see, he's, he's, he has a very balanced view. He's saying, on the one hand, when you see, don't be a stumbling block, so try your best not to do something that would be a source of offense, but at the same time, instruct and make people realize that this is not the kingdom. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with eating and drinking. And actually, this is what so much of what this epistle has been about, addressing the Jews and telling them, you do not have salvation simply because you are sons of Abraham. You do not have salvation simply because you are circumcised. You are, do not have salvation simply because you have certain practices or heritage or history or whatnot, right? So the kingdom of God is not about those things. It is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us per pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Right? Do not be preoccupied with the subject of food as long as um, the issue of your brother's salvation like, like, like is at stake. Like, like don't, don't, don't be overly you know, focusing on the idea of food and the importance of food or these other like ritualistic type things. For his sake, abstain from foods if they cause him to stumble. Okay? Also, don't be so focused on proving your point of view because the goal here is not to win arguments, but the goal is um, to see the salvation of everyone, including these weaker Christians that don't have a correct and true understanding of what salvation is about and, and, and the grace of God as compared to following the law. Do yes. How do I explain it to people who believe that eating pork is sin without offending? Well, so it goes back to what St. Paul said. He says nothing is unclean and of itself, right? Um, so, so a substance by itself is not unclean. The thing that makes it sinful is the, the effect that it has. So, for instance, what makes drugs sinful? Because it damages the body, right? That's what makes it sinful. It, it, it God God does not simply create a substance and then he say that substance is is off limits just for the sake of it it's in itself it's always because of the effect that it has um also in in the book of acts as i mentioned when um when when God was preparing saint peter to um to to go and to preach to cornelius what what did he do he had him see this vision where in this vision there was these animals that came down from heaven animals that were considered unclean by the Jews and he told him to eat them so like it was a very very clear a uh, message saying the animals that you used to see as unclean are actually clean and actually Saint Peter responded in the vision and he said no how can I have never eaten anything unclean and 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 God said what do not call something uh, unclean that God has declared to be clean so he's saying this why? Not about the food. He's saying it about the Gentiles. He's saying the Gentiles were actually unclean. The Gentiles were unclean in the Old Testament. And that's why God told um, the, the, uh, the, the, the Jews to stay away from them. Just like the pork, just like everything else. They were one of the unclean things. 
And so now in preparing St. Peter to go to the house of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, he told him, go, because he is not unclean. I have declared him to be clean, meaning I have declared him to be allowed, right? It is allowed. He was, the Gentiles were never inherently sinful by their existence. Actually, they were created in the image of God just like everyone else. But God did not allow the Jews for the sake of their own protection to interact with them. So God labeled them to be unclean, which means they are not allowed for you. They are not permitted for you. It doesn't mean that their substance is evil. It means they are not permitted, right? But now they are permitted, right? So, and so this, is the, this, is, this is the way I would respond. Yes? So um, there are situations, there are examples of saints, as you said, that were like falsely accused and, and they were uh, attacked for having done evil, something evil. And for the sake of their own like humility and self-humiliation to accept suffering for the sake of Christ, they did not try to defend themselves. But um, there are also times where Saint the, the 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 example I have in mind is Saint um, Ephraim the Syrian, Saint Ephraim the Syrian he was accused of fathering a child out of wedlock, and because of his humility, he, he and because he felt like God is the one who is gonna you know bring the truth, he was not going to say anything even though he was cast out he was rejected the people rejected him, uh, and 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 you know, and so it, he accepted all of that like in his humility for the sake of Christ, like suffering for the sake of Christ. But then at one point came someone from, I don't remember who it was, um, came, someone who knew that he was innocent, came to him and said, you know, pretty much saying, it's one thing for you to accept this for, for yourself, but you have become a stumbling block to the congregation. Because now all the people see you as this great and holy man that they saw you as, and now they are scandalized because of the sin that you have committed, and they all believe that you are guilty because you have not defended yourself. So what did he do? Is he took the child that um, was born, that, that, the, that the person had accused him of being the father of, and he, he took the child like in the midst of the congregation and like lifted up the child, and the child spoke, and this is a baby. The baby spoke and essentially said that St. Ephraim was not the father. So the lesson that we learn from that is that, yes, there is a time where maybe we accept suffering, the suffering of being falsely accused, and we accept it with humility and silence as a, as a kind of like, um, as a way of like learning to suffer with Christ so there's some spiritual benefit in it for me to kind of like um, my pride to be broken, okay? But there are also times where doing so would cause harm to others. And I think the fact that we live in a society and we, we, live, we, have, uh, we live a church and stuff, most of the time I think if, if someone is accused of something, especially if it's something very bad, um, and they are innocent, they have to defend themselves. Because um, if, if everyone believes that this is true, right, then it could actually have 
a negative effect on on the others. So again, everything has to be done with discernment, right? Like not every situation is like the other. Here, it's not speaking about like an indi like it's, it's not saying um, do not let do do not let yourself be spoken of as evil. It's saying do not let your good be sp spoken of as evil, right? Meaning, you you what you are doing through your actions and through your words is kind of sending a message to the world about what is it that God requires of us for salvation, right? So the standard that God requires of us of salvation, of course, is very important because we all want to know what is it that we need to do to have salvation. So if I'm practicing something and somebody else says about me, what you are doing is wrong, the focus here is not about whether I'm wrong or not. The focus is on, is my practice the right practice that God has commanded or not? You see the distinction here? So like in the example I gave of St. Um, Ephraim the Syrian, no one was claiming that having a child out of wedlock was a good thing. It was a personal attack against him that he did committed a sin. Whereas here what St. Paul is speaking about is the standard. Does God require us to practice circumcision or not? Does God require us to hold fast to certain days or not? Does God require us to abstain from certain food or not? Because whatever that answer is, then applies to all the believers. So we should not let, we should not cause more confusion that when someone comes and attacks my practice, then I just remain quiet and I, uh, you know, no, I have to I have to clarify why is it that what I am doing is actually in line with the commandment of God, assuming it is. So he continues, he says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay? So if a person eats without being fully convinced that his actions are acceptable to God, then he commits sin. Right? If a person eats without being fully convinced that his actions are acceptable to God, then he, then he commits a sin. Because he is doing something that could be sinful and he doesn't know and he's choosing to do it anyway. right? So he has to be fully understanding. That's why he says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats. If a person is not sure, he's doubting, is it okay for me to eat this? Is it not okay for me to eat this? But then he eats anyway, it is, it is not from faith. The person who is acting out of faith is the one who believes that God has allowed certain things in his, in his faith and then he chooses to eat those things so then he is not condemning himself, right? He's not condemning himself by what he has chosen to do because he believed and was convinced and he, he followed through with what it is that he believed. Now, of course, again, you can't take this argument and apply it to everything. I can say, you know, I believe that homosexuality is good, so I'm going to practice homosexuality, and then God is going to say it's good. No, because that's a clear commandment. Whereas, whereas here, this is an issue that was arising in the early church because you had people from different backgrounds, and the question was about ritualistic things, right? The question was, does God condemn certain substances? Are there certain substances that are clean or unclean? Okay? Chapter 15. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. 
For even Christ did not please himself, but as, <coughs> but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So St. Paul is using Christ as an example to follow. Christ did not please himself. Christ allowed himself to be harmed and insulted for our sake. Um, so we should also be willing to do the same. This is the same example that he gave earlier in chapter 14 when he was when he was saying like Christ or, or that St. John Chrysostom gave. He, he was saying like look at the sacrifice that Christ made for us to, to sacrifice the things that were good, the things that he had for himself for the sake of the salvation of others. So also we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, right? And because this leads to their edification. And this is what we are trying to do. We're trying to edify one another as the body of Christ. We edify one another. We serve one another. We, we help each other to grow, just as others also helped us to grow. You know, sometimes those who grew up in the church take for granted all of the people that invested in them throughout their entire life so that they could become the people that they are and so that they could know the things that they know and they could become accustomed to the things that they're accustomed to and develop the habits and the routines that they have. You know, um, people who come from the outside, they did not grow up their entire life in the church, maybe did not come to the church at all for, for a long period of time. They didn't have those benefits, right? Like they, 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 they need, just as we all need, the people to invest in us, to have patience with us, to help us to grow, and, 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 and to sacrifice themselves for our sake, just as others sacrifice themselves for our sake. And specifically here, of course, um, kind of the, the pinnacle example of this is Christ himself who sacrificed himself um, for our sake. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, he, he, he's referencing the Old Testament. Okay, these are, these are quotes from the Old Testament. And if you look back in the Old Testament, you see even at the time when the Gentiles were considered to be unclean, when the Jews were not allowed to be in contact with them. But he says what? Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Like what? This is a prophecy. How is it that the Gentiles are going to praise the Lord? Right? Because they are not they are not believers. They are not Jews. Only the Jews knew the Lord. How is it the Gentiles were going to praise the Lord? Because this was a prophecy. And he says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall reign shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. This is Christ, who will become the Lord of the Gentiles. The root of Jesse, because he is his ancestor is King David, who is the son of Jesse. So from the root and from the line, the ancestry 
of, of, of Jesse through King David and the tribe of Judah to Christ. He is the one who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. If the Jews really pay attention to their own scripture at the time and begin to try to understand what are these prophecies, what do they even mean? You know, it's easy to, to hear these prophecies and kind of just don't really understand them. You look back at it now and you realize that the plan of salvation for the Gentiles was there all along. It was always there. The time for it had not yet come. And there was the waiting of the time of the Messiah, whereas the Messiah is now the one who is going to offer salvation to them as well. But the Jew here, St. Paul, is asking the Jews to open their hearts uh, in love to the Gentiles and to see that it was God's plan from the beginning that they be saved. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, all and able also to admonish one another. So he is now like um, speaking about their strengths, right? I'm confident that you are full of goodness and that you are filled with knowledge and that you are able to serve one another, uh, encourage one another, um, rebuke one another, correct one another. You're able to deal with an one another in wisdom and discernment, okay? So, so initially he was speaking about their duty to tolerate the failures of the weak and as converted Jews they were to accept the Gentiles into the faith um, and now he's speaking to them like um, in a positive way right so he's not overburdening them he praises them by saying these things about them nevertheless brethren I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. He's saying, this is my ministry. Like, I am coming and, and I have been sent to the Gentiles to bring them into the body of Christ. And so when I'm speaking to you, Jews, I am reminding you, of what you have been given. I'm reminding you of the grace that you have been given, that I also have received, and that I am a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, and I want you to participate in this ministry. You know, like like his ministry was, was, was to the Gentiles, and he is including them as a part of that mission, right, as a part of that ministry. Who is it that is going to preach to them? St. Paul is not there constantly. He is not there all the time to, to treat them right. It is the church that has to treat them right. You know, like God God does not come and to deal with every situation. He wants us to deal with it in wisdom, in love. When people come to the church, he wants us to deal with them in a loving way, right? It is our responsibility to do so. For I will not uh, dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Elycrium I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. So he's saying all of my success that I have had in all the places I have gone to preach, it has been through the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And he's saying what? He will not dare to boast of any of the work that, that was performed apart from the work of God in him. 
St. John Chrysostom, he says, he says this to indicate that he is far removed from vainglory. Besides, he wishes to instruct them that he is writing to them to fulfill his ministry. He does not seek any personal glory to honor or honor from them, but he seeks to fulfill his priestly work and as one concerned for their salvation. You can see him hurrying to areas where the work is greater and the conditions more severe. So again, he, he's not seeking his glory. He's speaking about all the ministry, the service he's doing all over the world. Um, and, and he doesn't want any personal recognition. And also they should not be seeking personal recognition, but allowing the work of the Holy Spirit um, to work in them. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. That's the Gentiles. To whom did he initially not come and announce himself? The Gentiles, they will see. And those who have not heard shall understand. Meaning, again, those people who did not hear about God in the Old Testament, they will it will be revealed to them and they will understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire for these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So he's saying the same thing that he was saying at the very beginning of the epistle. He has a desire to visit them in Rome, and he has not yet been able to go, and then he hopes that while he is traveling to Spain, he is able to make a stop there and visit them. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. So he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Gentiles in the region of Achaia and Macedonia, this is where the, the Corinthians are, the Thessalonians, this groups of people, that group of Gentiles who have received the spiritual things from the Jews because the Jews are like the forerunners, the one who came before them to deliver the spiritual things because it is through them that the Lord Jesus Christ came and was incarnate. The Gentiles who have been partakers of their spiritual things, it is now their duty to minister to them the material things. So because the, uh, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were very persecuted and they were in need, uh, St. Paul sent uh, for to collect money from the Gentiles in uh, Greece and these areas in order to bring it to Jerusalem for the sake of um, the believers there. And so it's like the, the Gentiles owe it to the Jews b because of the work that they have done for their own salvation. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain but I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So he's saying, I'm first going to go and deliver th this, and then he plans to go and visit them. Um, and he, this, this writing, he is writing to the Romans now from Corinth. So he is currently in the Corinthian church, writing this book to the Romans. And this is during his third missionary journey um, that is written about in the book of Acts. Now I beg you, brethren. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God and peace uh, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. 
Um, so he's saying when he goes to Jerusalem to deliver these donations uh, to them, there is a possibility that he might be martyred because they want to kill him there, right? So, so um, wh when he goes there, that's why he's saying that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. Those people who are rejecting him, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the, the Jews that, didn't, that did not believe in Christ, when, when he comes, they might kill him, okay? So, so he is, he's asking for their prayers and that by the will of God, he would be able to see them. Um, this chapter is really considered kind of like the conclusion of the epistle. We're going to read the last chapter. The last chapter is just names, and so we're just going to read through it pretty quickly. Um, here is like this is the kind of the conclusion of the whole epistle. Um, he ends up traveling. So what is the rest of the story? He ends up traveling to Jerusalem, okay, um, and is arrested there. This is in Acts chapter 21 that we read about that. And then he appeals to Caesar and gets sent to Rome as a prisoner. And then um, on his way to Rome, he is shipwrecked. This is we read about it in Acts chapter 27. And then he finally arrives in Rome in Acts chapter 28. Um, he preaches there in Rome for two years while he is in a rented house. Um, and he writes four more epistles. This is kind of he's under house arrest. He writes um, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. He writes those four when he is in house arrest in Rome. And then he is released from his arrest. And he writes 1 Timothy and Titus and 2 Timothy and continues his missionary work until finally he is imprisoned again in Rome and he's martyred under Emperor Nero. That's kind of the remaining events of the life of St. Paul um, after this. It's always interesting to see kind of the events of one epistle kind of coincide with others so you can kind of get a sense of the chronology of everything. Um, as I said, this is the last chapter. We're just going to read it pretty quickly. Um, he just gives his final greetings um, to many people. There's 26 people actually that are mentioned um, and many of them we don't even know who they are. Um, he says, I commend, you, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who was a servant of the church in Sancria. Phoebe, she is a deaconess, uh, and some say she is a Gentile convert, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Achilla. These are also mentioned very often in um, the book of Acts, who are kind of fellow servants with St. Paul. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches, uh, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my brother uh, Epinetius, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius. My beloved in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved, greet Apelles, approved in Christ, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus, uh, greet Herodian, my countrymen, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord, greet Trephena, greet Trephosa, who have and Trephosa who have labored in the Lord, greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine, greet as in Critus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them, greet Philog uh, Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. This is the same thing that we say in the liturgy.
greet one another with a holy kiss, which is like a sign of affection and love for those in the body of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. For th those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. So he always gives warning about those who are the false teachers, though who wish to sow division and strife among the, those in the church. They do not have the spirit of, spirit of humility, but they want to gain kind of authority and power for themselves. He says, do not give them attention. Do not allow them to do more damage because they can easily deceive the people. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, uh, Sosipater, and my countrymen greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. As we said before, St. Paul would not write his epistles by his own hand, but there will be someone who is like uh, he is uh, transcribing it. Um, and so this man, Tertius, is the one who was actually writing the text, and now he is kind of giving his own greeting at the end. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. Quartus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. To God alone, wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So he has this as a conclusion, concluding doxology. And here St. Paul is like underlining a few things. He says God is, is the one who makes us stand firmly in his gospel. He tells us his word and he's able to make us to keep his word. God's plan for us is an eternal mystery. That even though he reveals many things to us, it has been kept a mystery since the world began and it is now manifested by the revealing of the prophetic scriptures, the things that are now have had been written and now being revealed and understood and carried out. This plan was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. And then finally, God's plan is that all the nations of the world become obedient um, in faith. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any final questions or comments about this book or what we read today? Okay. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and for allowing us to complete, O Lord, another one of the epistles in your scripture. We thank you, O Lord, because you provide for us your word, and that we can understand it and apply it. Teach us, O Lord, always to meditate on your scripture, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, to meditate on it and to live it out in our daily lives. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all, go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all, amen.